Welcome. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, well, it's great to have you here. Um, you're, you're here, you're a visiting writer for the Zell series at the University of Michigan, and you've also um, got a, your latest book with you, um, which we'll get to hear, I hope, some from, Bright Felon, Autobiography and Cities. Mm-hmm. And then it looks like you also have another couple of books, so could we hear some, some poems and pieces from earlier? Yeah, that would works be great. Too. That would be great. Did you bring your novel as well? I didn't bring my novel with me. Well, maybe we can either talk. of them. <laughs> oh, because there's one fourth two. Well, there's no, there's two that are out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? Without further ado, I'll read great. your bio, and then we'll get to it. Cool. <laughs> Kazim Ali is the author of two books of poetry, The Far Mosque and The Fortieth Day, in addition to Orange Alert, essays on poetry, art and the architecture of silence, published as part of the University of Michigan Press's Poets on Poetry series in October 2010. He is also the author of the novel Quinn's Passage, named one of the best books of 2005 by Chronogram Magazine, and The Disappearance of Seth, and of the transgenre memoir Bright Felon, Autobiography in Cities. A second tra- transgenre volume of essays, lyric prose, and memoir is forthcoming in 2011 from Tupelo Press. His work has been featured in many national journals, such as Best American Poetry 2007, American Poetry Review, Boston Review, Barrow Street, Jubilat, and Massachusetts Review. He teaches at Oberlin College and at the Stonecast MFA program. Stone Coast. Stone Coast. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said cast. Oh, it's okay. Um, sounds nice. <laughs> you're very kind. And we'll get, we're almost to the end of the bio here. And I had to trip up. Okay. Let's go back. He teaches at Oberlin College and at the Stone Coast MFA program and is a founding editor of Nightboat Books. So again, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks. It's really great. Because you're in kind of a rigorous schedule while you're visiting. At the moment, yeah. But it's really fun. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. So you've been, I just, I just took you away from a round table. With the MFA students, yeah. And then we ran across the square and came here. I'm a road warrior, though, so I like the busy schedules. Right. Right. Well, thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because you don't get off lightly here. No, no. But it's nice. It's been been great to be here. Well, it's good to have you. And how exciting about the... Um, this book out with Michigan Press, too, well, the yeah. Orange Alert. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the Michigan series, Poets on Poetry, is a really kind of well-known series. Um, and when I was, you know, a young poet, or I'm still a young poet, please, but um, <laughs> but definitely when I was starting to write poetry and thinking about poetry, the Poets on Poetry series was one that um, I used to educate myself as a writer, and I read, you know, Phil Phil Levine and Charles Simic, um, Galway Kinnell, Marge Piercy, um, uh, you know, Anne Sexton, all of these amazing uh, writers who wrote books in this series, and I read their, you know, James Wright. Um, and then t- when I started to write essays and I thought about where I would want them to be published, I thought of this series, but it was kind of like, not realistic, um, but Annie Finch and Marilyn Hacker, who are two wonderful poets who have taken over edit- editorship of the series um, and have published some really amazing books, even very recently by poets like Reginald Shepard and Mina Alexander um, and Elizabeth Alexander, um, chose chose this book. So it's really humbling and wonderful to be part of the series. Yeah, that is that. It must. It, 
something that was a dream at one point. Now, S- sort of, but like a very unrealistic <laughs> dream. But look how but real. He- here we are. Yeah, <laughs> this is sort yeah. of surreal. Then surreal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sur surreal, like S I R R E A L, like a person. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on to your hats, folks, because there's going to be lots of wordplay oh, no. from Kazu. Here we go. Yeah, but yeah. it's hard to do wordplay on the radio when you have to like spell everything out in a way, you know. But, but look how you did it. You managed it already. I did. I did, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, well. So let's fill in a little bit more about your your biography because mm-hmm. it's obviously something that you're bringing to your writing because with this latest um, latest collection from Wesleyan, um, Bright Felon, Autobiography in Cities, mm-hmm. um, it, you're grappling with it there or it's in the forefront. Yeah, I'm not only grappling with my own experiences in a way that I didn't... Um haven't I haven't written very autobiographically before this book. This was really my first experience of actually bringing out my actual life and the quotidian stuff in it to the forefront. So I'm not just grappling with my own life and my own experiences, but also I think with the form of autobiography or how a life tells itself. And so for me, um, uh, you know, I had moved so much from city to city all over the place. And that's definitely one of the things that obsessed me as I started to think about my life is how much did space and place govern my experiences. Um, and so the book is a book. It is. Well, the subtitle Autobiography in Cities means it's a book about autobiography, but it's also a book about cities. In this case, all the cities that I've lived in, you know, so I think that was one of the things that um, informed the structure of the book itself, you know, to the, you know, not just on the level of chapter, but to the level of sentence and how it's actually written. And and why do you think that you chose this? Like, was it something in, in your life, like this time to start writing the using your looking to your own life for material right. rather than the, the, the other? No, absolutely. Poems. I mean, I was in a moment of um, pressure in my life in terms of trying to understand. I was at one of those extreme transitional moments. And in order to try to understand what my own life was about or what my motivations were or where I was moving next, I needed to go back and understand something about my childhood. But I couldn't jump back right away. I had to work my way back. So that's why, okay, well, actually, (laughs) let me ask you. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. If that's why the chronology of Bright Felon is such as it is, working from um, 2004, Right. Yeah, that's absolutely the reason. No, 2006 oh, actually 2006. is when I... Oh, okay. I start Actually, yes, that's right. Fall of 2006 is when I started writing it. I think around October or November. I can't remember exactly. Um, but yes, I started in the city that I was living in at the time, which was Marble Hill, which is actually not a city in itself. It's a neighborhood in New York City. But it is a hill. It is a hill. No, it's an actual hill. <laughs> It is an actual hill, and um, and it is made of marble, which is why it was called Marble Hill. That's all underneath. It was being excavated for marble to construct various buildings and such. Um, but I did start with that because I wanted to move backward and understand some of the things that had happened during my life, why so this, I moved around so much, you know, but, all of these kinds of But this of, was intentional then. Yeah. So when you sat down, you were thinking, this is a time I need to understand something. So yeah. it was that very... Because we talk about writing to discover. Mm-hmm. Right? That's when it's really working well. Or, yeah. So this is one of those moments that you use that. Did you have a notebook? Did you did you think, um, this is going to be a book? Um, or this is I can use this as a form? I knew that it was going to be a book conceptually. I didn't know that I was going to publish it or not. But I had a shape for it. I knew it was going to be an extended work. I, I started out by writing... 
um, one, I knew it was going to have one chapter for each city that I lived in, and I listed out the cities in a table of contents before I ever started because I knew that. And then I, I gave myself the formal constraint of writing f at least five pages in each city. So there were moments when I would get you know two and a half pages in and feel like I'd run out of material, and I knew I had to force myself to continue through in order to fulfill that. And a lot of the richest material, of course, came after that point when I had wanted to stop, basically. Um, what Did you notice like an actual change in timber or something in the the two and a half pages that came next, or or yeah. what was it? Well, definitely the structure it of it. The structure of it is sentences one after the other. There are no paragraphs in the book. There is a, very occasionally there are actually paragraphs, but they're really really tiny, short, like four lines at the longest. At the I longest, think. at the longest, but mostly it's individual lines and sometimes even individual words. So it has a a form that's somewhat between prose and poetry. Although it is written in prose sentences, you could call it so called prose poetry. Poetry or whatever. So is that why you're calling, or or it's called cross genre? Called cross genre. But in fact, when I thought about the word trans genre, I thought or trans, about trans yeah, genre. Yeah, and the reason why we called it trans genre is this idea of genre as something uh, that is not. Um, inherent in a work. It's not fixed. And so I started to think about genre the way you would think about gender. So does a person have a gender or are those qualities that we associate with gender socially inscribed upon a person? What's biological and what's linguistic or social? What are the inherent behaviors of gender and genre. So I originally started thinking about Bright Fallon as a transgenre book, the way you would think of a transgendered person who's moving from one set of qualities to another. But what it really is, it's actually not transgenre in as such because it lives comfortably in between those things. So what it really is, like you have people who identify as being gender queer, this is a book that is genre queer. <laughs> it's neither prose nor is it poetry. It seeks its own space. It moves, sometimes moves in the direction of memoir, sometimes moves back in the direction of poetry. Sometimes it's both of those things at once. Sometimes it's neither. It is, it's not in a fixed state. So but trans, trans genre, it's, that's not really even correct either, <laughs> that phrase. So what would be then? So I would what? say genre queer. That's that would it be it. Because the there is a for, there is a wonderful book. It's called Gender Queer Beyond the Sexual Binary. And it's all these stories of people who write about gender and its lack of fixity and the queerness of gender at all in any circumstance, even to say male or female, but something else, some other thing that's unclassifiable, that we all occupy that space. So in this essay um, by a writer named Ricky Wilkins, she writes about gender queer. She said... What um, qualities of gender does a person have? Is a woman who likes to dress up in little mini skirts and power suits and high heels and wear lots of lipstick, but then goes into the office and you know acts strongly and takes on those masculine qualities? Like, what do we call her in ways she's exhibiting what Ricky Wilkins calls gender queer behavior? Or what? Or about, is that a balancing act? Or I, about, to yeah. to be this one way, I have to go to the other extreme in this other way to right. be accepted. And because so. these are the 
qualities that the society is putting on you. Mm-hmm. Or what about the other example she uses is the captain of the football team who loses a game and he cries in the locker room. So he's this tough kid, but then he has access to these other more tenderer emotions that are assigned away like real men don't cry. So, so he ex- is exhibiting what she calls in this book genderqueer behavior because he's moving of, in between. Were you reading this book as you were no, considering no. this <laughs> memoir, this project or form or shaping it, revising no, it? No, not at all. But reading that book helped me to understand the form of this book yes. as not needing to explain whether it was poetry or whether it was memoir. Read it as a memoir if you want to read it as a memoir or read it as poetry if it helps you to read because it's more of like how you read. So what I mean to say is genre may be a reading practice as opposed to something that's inherent in the work. Sometimes, like gender, we read gender on, we, ins- we, well, we inscribe gender onto something or we read it as gendered as opposed to something that's kind of inherent. And so, let me who knew that we would be talking about gender theory in a? <laughs> well, actually, no. I'm I'm completely visiting writers. <laughs> no, no. I actually because um, I I misread it, Kazim. At first, I thought it said, um, trans. <laughs> And of the transgender memoir. I know. At first, when I, I first read it, and then it people to make myself. assumptions about me, <laughs> and, uh, you and then know, I was yeah. like, no, it's it's genre, genre, and so it's, gender. So there is that. But gender and genre, as I argue, are pretty close to each other. Yeah. 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 They have something to do with one another. Was the was the was the form then? Because um, it's interesting. You said that you were putting on some of the constraints of the mm-hmm. poem. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know what? We're ki- we're getting kind of close to the the time, so maybe. Um, I'll just throw this out there. Ask me we'll, a question and then we'll come back. We'll It'll be a cliff hang, about cliffhanger it. ending. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, the pressure's on. I know. <laughs> um, so so you had the constraint of the poem, like five pages for each of the cities, right? So that would be something a poet would mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. But then how, when you were, were the lines just coming out this length mm-hmm. where it's coming across mm-hmm. the page, was that something that was happening naturally? And then you were able to kind of work with that and bring that form to the whole thing Mm -hmm. or did you also start out with that as a preconceived idea of what it was going to look like in this genre queer book Hmm. okay more after the break (laughs) will you remember the question i think i will (laughs) between the two of us (laughs) you're listening to living writers today kazim ali i'm t hetzel we'll be right back Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Kazim Ali is here. His latest um, book we've been talking about, Bright 
Felon autobiography and cities. Um, I love also how I just hesitated there because I couldn't say book of poetry. Book of, <laughs> you can the, call it whatever you want. <laughs> but that's exactly what we're, we've been talking about. So, um, so to go back to where we left off. Mm-hmm. So you asked me a question about the this, this the level of the sentence and the stretching out over the margin, and I think I was really inspired when I was writing this book of the idea of single instants that make up a life, and I was also really interested in the way time moves backwards and forwards in our own experiences. But what do you mean by the single instance? Are you talking about memory here? Or yeah, because like we have right now, we have you and me. We're we're sitting and looking at each other. We also have um, our echo of the Alice Coltrane music that we just heard. Um, there's also um, the future exists right now because I know that in a moment after I leave here, I'm going to read. So that's kind of there. I'm also thinking about the class that I taught this morning. I might look down and see this gray and be reminded of something. So all of these things happen at once in our mind, in our brains. And the actual clean linear narrative of a life, the way it's explained, is not really how we live our life and our experience. So when I was writing Bright Felon and trying to write about my past, all of these things were crashing together. And so when I started out, I started out by writing what I thought were going to be notes that I was then going to sort out and edit. And as I started to write pages and pages and pages and pages of this, and I was skipping around, and I knew that I couldn't write notes in an organized fashion. I just had to write whatever came into my mind. So it was sort of stream of consciousness writing, but it was stream of consciousness writing not about the present moment in front of me. It was stream of consciousness writing about points in my past. So I was trying to think everything I could remember about Albany, go. And I was just writing, 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 writing. In a notebook? On the computer? How? Actually on the computer, which is a very different for me because every other book that I'd ever written up until this book, I wrote longhand in a notebook. This is the very first thing that I ever wrote that I typed in a computer. So, you know, I think that... It was a time thing because it because I was writing fast. I was able to type really fast, so I had a quicker. I I didn't censor myself as much. And then the other thing is like a lot of the stuff that I write about in this book is actually really painful stuff that was very emotionally visceral and powerful. And something about typing it enabled me to distance myself from it and just get through it. You know, I would get to a really tough part and I would just power through it typing. And very occasionally in the book, I would be typing about something that I didn't want to be thinking about, and I would just look away at some corner of the room and be like my fingers would be typing while I just like watched what two people were doing in the corner of the coffee shop or something that I happened to be sitting in. So it really lent itself to that um, textured non-linearity, this jumping around, these sort of associative leaps, poetic leaps from subject to subject. Um, it really kind of came into the practice of typing it. I don't think I could have written this book any other way. Both of my novels and all of my poetry, they've, I've always handwritten. Um, all of that stuff was handwritten first, you know. And, wh- and wh- that, because this is the first time you're looking, you were actually doing the figuring out, trying to understand your life, whereas the other material was, even though it was you still, it, you were still slightly more distanced to it. Well, it's not so that could... as much as it was the other stuff I was making in the present moment. I was working through something as I wrote it. It was it was happening. But with this, I was trying to analyze or think about or recount past events, the things recreation. that had happened in my life already and yeah. reflect upon them. So they were already finished events. Well, finished in quotes because obviously they were unfinished and moving forward in time. And that's why they were surfacing for you yeah. in each of these cities. Yeah, because those events weren't finished and those cities weren't finished and still aren't. So this book is a record of 
forward momentum. And you don't get what happens after the book because we're moving back in time. We end in my childhood. We don't end in the present moment. <laughs> Although there is an epilogue that happened in the present moment. Were there moments where the constraint of five pages was you could not stop? I always pushed forward to that point. I never allowed myself to stop before that. But there were a couple of chapters where I kept did keep going. Not too many. I think three chapters that ended up being longer than that. And and did you just allow it to stand that way, or, or yeah, did I just you... kept going. I just kept going with it. Okay. It seems like I had more to say. I, the Cairo chapter, for example, is pretty long, and the Rhinebeck chapter is also pretty long. Will you read something for us now, so the listeners can have a have can a sense it. of it? Sure, yeah. I will read something to you. I'll read you a chapter that's called Carlisle, uh, and this is from when I lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. How many pages would you like me to read? Um, well, it's let's go how about two minutes okay does that sound good you can let me know you can make a little wave (laughs) wiggle your fingers carlisle because what i think is that this tender beast brown-skinned animal grotesque and lustful is me and my immortal soul besides always in the broken story there is more to tell mornings i rise in the cold and walk two blocks down the to the old colonial graveyard to read history in the broken stones names sometimes worn away the stories of first wives second wives dead infants and unmarked who's in this way read the history of a place the history of any place for me is simple a route between my home on South Bedford Street across the main intersection to the coffee shop on the corner of Pitt and High Street. The other compass points are the independent bookstore, the used bookstore, a house on Hanover Street where Marianne Moore lived, and a strange park that was once a graveyard on the north side of town, a place where the land was broken and the bones disturbed. Details on the display plaques in that park are sketchy and will lead me into shadowed places, the town records, rooms I've never been. But I don't discover the small park near the railroad tracks with its distressing history until I've lived in the town for more than seven months. In the body of a tree I hear a resonance, while out in space between planets lie cores of planets. An iron fence grows through the heart of the tree. I pass it every day in the morning when I walk. You were saying something. What I learned is that each asteroid is held in careful place by a partner in space. And if such a body didn't exist, then the orbital patterns of these same can be extrapolated graphically. A discovery which pleases me almost as much as the day I learned that every cubic equation actually has an associated modular form. But is the reverse true? And what has all this to do with Carlisle, Pennsylvania, once a frontier town, but constructed at the frontier with specific intent to push the boundaries of the state out to Cumberland Pass? Thank you, Kazim. That is the beginning of the chapter, and Carlisle. Is, <laughs> is, and is the next piece, uh, the next stanza there, is that the part where it says about, it's ad- addressing the cemetery and saying, well, the reason why these graves were, could you read that too, please? I get to that, that part one? eventually, yeah, I'll, or, go, I'll skip forward to that. Let's get to that. Hold on a second. Um, okay. 
In the mornings of the late fall, when it is cold enough to feel the winter beginning, I would leave the house very early and walk south on Bedford Street into the old cemetery. Here is the closest place you come to in America, to a city piled on top of a city. It's not like that in Cairo, where the city sedimented itself and we walked down the Greek streets themselves, saw the churches hidden underground, accessible only by otherwise unmarked staircases in empty courtyards. Through the cemetery, I read the fate of the village, the deaths, the family trees, the broken headstones, how we will all break. When I speak about my body's life, I know it is brothered and descended from, but do not know if blood will descend from my blood. Does a family break, or can it like water evaporate and condense, and so will I then be a father in a million different ways? Leaving the cemetery, I walk through the old districts to the north side of town, and after crossing the railroad tracks, find a park there which is really another cemetery, or was, the graves now all dug up, replaced by a small green park. One grave, surrounded by a small iron fence, remains. The granddaughter of this man lived across the street, and when the park was planned, she battled to have this grave protected, and so it was. The others, descendantless, have disappeared, the headstones shattered and removed, the ground planted over. As I walk, I realize likely the bodies and bones remain deep underground, dissipating. You know, without explanation, whose graveyard that was that was torn up. You understand the color of their skin that enabled their desecration and what station they occupied in this community while they lived. Why should I spell out every little thing? There are things about a person's body you do not know, the things it craves and loves, all the sordid things we could never tell, the cheap things, tawdry and paltry. Carlisle, where soldiers are trained and Indians were brought to be forced to forget. Never did I think when I arrived there that it would be the place I would sort myself out and dare actually to speak. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and, and there's a moment, because it is, it's like, it seems like this is where you're actually beginning the unraveling in more earnestness. Yeah. It's like you've you've come to terms with what you're actually going to do in the first piece. If you're, cause you said you wrote this chronologically. Yes, it went. This, and, yeah. It did. Yeah. And so, cause there's a mo cause a few, a couple of stanzas, stanzas down, a line says, um, part of it, you could look at anything and understand. Mm -hmm. And that was the central Pennsylvania sky yeah. somehow allowed for that. Yeah. The strange quality of this green, green copper domes against the sort of gray and i find the gray rainy skies to be so beautiful you know because everything sort of glows a little bit with the electricity everything feels so sharp and defined you instead know? of what you might assume yeah yeah as washed out or yeah, yeah. or cl cloudy as a state of mind being like foggy but for me this idea of cloudy is um actually filters the light in a way that makes things clearer <laughs> So that's your own. That's lovely. Thank you. Lovely. Um, and it's interesting because in this piece then, when, as you read on, Kazim, um, you, you, because we're in Pennsylvania, we're walking, we're in a very specific place that you're describing in this, um, this moment of memory. But then the memory um, uh, goes further back on itself because it jumps 
in time and geography to Cairo as well. Right, which hasn't even been told yet. Yes, yeah. but yeah. You're, you're bringing it in as an example as if, well, of course, because in right. this moment of time, it is. And at the very beginning of this chapter, there is a whole section about Rhinebeck, which I didn't read actually um, just now. But uh, when you read it in the book, you'll see that. And almost immediately, I start talking about Rhinebeck. And I haven't gotten to Rhinebeck yet. So it's sort of this idea of things that move backwards and forwards, or or a place is not contained by a, only its place itself. It contains all these other places. And, and when you're doing that, because you're doing that with other words, for example, in this section that we just heard aloud, there's this, the 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 idea of the brokenness and the shatteredness. Mm-hmm. And so those are things that are returning and moving in different places and graveyards and, mm-hmm. and in your own self. And, um, and then, and so it's interesting cause those are acting like notes, right? That seems like a thing that we, we understand mm-hmm. in poetry or in, mm-hmm. in, um, writing. Well, there. because a city itself is like that. It is, um, uh, you know, it is the broken, but not the broken that it's going to mend itself. But a city exists as a phenomenon in time and space. So as you're walking down the street, you pass the gourmet food store that used to be a used bookstore. Then you walk by a college dorm. Then you walk by the restaurant that is next to the dry cleaner place that is now a sushi counter. You know what I mean? Like cities are concatenations of um, random events and they exist in time and space both. And that's the exciting thing about them. And that's part of what I was talking about when I was talking about Cairo. But really any city is like that. I mean, even American cities, which are mostly relatively new, you still have that quality. Because they are moving through time, mm-hmm. right? As are we. <laughs> Hurtling through time yes. here. On Hurtling through time and space. <laughs> Pigs in space. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> From the Muppets. <laughs> From the Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome, too. But we don't have a... We, we're going to stick with the Alice Cole train and the Yoko oh, Ono. Otherwise, we'd have Dr. Julia could... Strange Pork and Captain Link and Miss Piggy. And Miss Piggy, and Miss Piggy Solo. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Why not? Um, well, so you're listening today to Living Writers. Today on the program, Kazim Ali, um, the book that we've just heard from, Bright Felon, Autobiography and Cities. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Um, when we come back, let's hear from some of the other books on the table, literally. Okay, okay we'll be right back. Very 
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Kazum Ali is here. Um, we've been talking about Bright Felon, Autobiography in Cities. Um, and we've been listening to Yoko Ono and Alice Coltrane, uh, both chosen by Kazum. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose these two ladies? Well, I love um, I love their music, um, both of them. They, uh, they both... Uh, um, have the, uh, not unfortunate, you can't say unfortunate, but they both have been seen within the context of their rather famous spouses. Um, But each of them are uh, brilliant thinkers in terms of sound and structure and music, and they come at it from different perspectives. Alice Coltrane is very spiritual, and I was introduced to her work actually through my yoga teacher, Sharon Gannon, um, who and David Life, who are the t- um, teaching founders and teachers of Jiva Mukti Yoga in New York City, which is where I practiced yoga for many, many years. And um, I was introduced through Sharon's writings, actually, to Alice Coltrane. And um, at the sound as a devotional force, sort of. So we heard a little bit of Alice Coltrane. And Yoko Ono, I was introduced to Yoko Ono's work when I went to the show, the retrospective show of her work that started at the Japan Society in the year 2000 and has since traveled around the world to various cities. And the catalog of that is called Yes, Yoko Ono, and it's edited by Alexandra Monroe. And it's a wonderful... Uh, retrospective of her life's work up until 2000 and that was 10 years ago there's so much more since then but what I was completely struck by which isn't that amazing too like the production oh there's so much I mean she's done work in film sculpture installation writing um, conceptual art music um, performance advertising art she's done all like a range of um, a range of genres and uh, she as strictly as a musician um, kind of went through a moment where I think she was doing something that uh, uh, we weren't ready to hear. <laughs> and then maybe seven or eight years later, you had um, artists like the B-52s and uh, um, Kate Bush and Cindy Lauper. And then Do you a mean little like bit, the pitches, like the voice, the tone? The pitches, or? yeah, all of that stuff, which which actually had existed in... Uh, in um, in Eastern music um, and in other um, alternative um, uh, genres of music existed. And in particular, Yoko Ono was working with the, some experimental jazz musicians, including Ornette Coleman. And what she was really interested in was trying to see what could the human voice do that these guys were making their instruments do. So she was using the human voice as an as like a, an abstract jazz instrument sort of and so I'm not sure people were ready for that yet and there was sort of a kind of a grungy heavy metal punk sound that she was sort of doing as a sort of 40 year old Japanese woman Um, and so then we weren't really ready for it but now you hear musicians like Bjork or Sonic Youth um, or Cindy Lauper, who I mentioned before, who are sort of stretching in different the 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 um you don't usually hear those three together. Three either. you don't hear those three together, but you can draw lines from them to what Yoko Ono was doing in the seventies. Especially if you're a poet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Yoko Ono is doing some pretty terrific stuff. And this um the tracks that we've been listening to are from her two thousand one album Blueprint for a Sunrise. 
Uh, and what's exciting about her is that she works in all kinds of musical genres. So there are some kind of ballads or pop songs. There's more experimental type of music and vocalizations and all that kind of stuff. So I think she's pretty, uh, pretty interesting artist. Do you feel like you're compatriots, like soul compatriots in a way? Yeah, I want to do an album with Yoko Ono. Who doesn't? <laughs> well, you heard it first here. Yeah, I Yoko, meet... if you're listening, I will tell give you. us a call. Well, I will tell 734, you. 734-763-3500. Yeah, tell her because she has a history with the University of Michigan because we had her come to Oberlin. She came to Oberlin in May 2010. Oh, so you've met her. I've met her, yeah. I met her. I danced with her on a stage. Yeah, it was fun. But here's the history. Her her <laughs> grandfather... You just dance away from that one. I know. Her grandfather, Ejiri Ono, was Oberlin College, class of 87, 1887. Uh, and he studied uh, political science at Oberlin. And then he graduated in 1887, and he came to the University of Michigan to do his PhD. And he was uh, one of the very first, rec- on record at any rate, Asian, uh, Asian citizens to come to an American institution and receive his PhD. I think he might have been the very first one. And then he went back to Japan and became a professor of political science for a number of years before he joined the family business, which was banking at the time. So she... Um, Yoko Ono has been at the University of Michigan before and has spent time in the archives learning about her grandfather. And she came to Oberlin and we did a bunch of archival research and went into the archives and uh, the found out. The two of out, you together? Uh, no, I went oh. with a professor of East Asian studies whose name is Anne Sheriff. Uh, and Anne and I spent a lot of time in the archives digging up a bunch of information about um, her grandfather. And then when she came to speak, we were able to meet with her and give her the pictures that we found and the stories. And, you know, you have to remember that the family lost a lot. They were in Tokyo and they lost a lot during the firebombing of Tokyo. And so some of the pictures that we were giving to Yoko Ono of her grandfather and her grandmother and her family, we weren't sure that she'd even seen them before, if those were things that the family had taken with them or not. So it was kind of a, it was a very powerful experience, actually. And, and so powerful for for you because of already what the, the, the sort of the space she occupied in your imagination before I know, you. But I couldn't tell her all that when she came. I had to be cool like a cucumber. Because otherwise I would have been the like, best. you know those girls like on the tarmac when the Beatles landed and they're like, ah, that was me. I was like, oh, Yoko, come over here. Oh my God. You know, so frothing at the mouth and such. So I had to contain myself a little bit, you know. Wise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now you're having a chance. Yeah. To... No, but she's a very wonderful woman. She's very quiet and and, uh, you know, she's small, very small, very quiet, very, very intelligent, very articulate. You know, we were talking about uh, music education and she was talking about how, you know, it's, uh, you know, that the classical music as part of the musical cur- music curriculum in the schools. And we were sort of going, you know, having these really great conversations about all this stuff as we walk. We installed um, one of her works, which is called Wish Tree. We made an installation of it on the Oberlin campus. So we all walked together to show her. And it was a very nice, it was a nice visit. You sound yeah. very connected to Oberlin. Now, I've like been very... there for four. This is my fourth year there. Yeah. So and, and we, well, when you if you read Bright Fellow, you'll know that's the longest I've lived anywhere since yeah. I was 17 years old. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that something within you is going to become restless and need to go? Is that something <laughs> that you feel like you learned from this or fortunately fortunately i do a lot of traveling so i get to still have that experience of going to different cities and places but what i'm really enjoying at the moment is actually living in a place and actually being there you know i mean there's boxes that i unpacked when i moved to oberlin that i hadn't unpacked since 1990 
you know. What did you find in those? Oh, these all these old papers and stuff and old manuscripts and old poems that I'd written when I was a young lad of 19. Yeah. And pictures and all these things. It's amazing what we keep carrying around with us, you know, from city to city. We, you know, my my one of my spiritual teachers was a gentleman by the name of John D. Provenzano, and one of the teachings he gave me was uh, I want you to go to one of your closets and just take everything in it and throw it away and just get rid of it, you know. And it's something I didn't actually bring myself to do, but it's this idea of how attached we are to the past and how we just drag all these things around with us, physical and conceptual, and that prevent us from living in the, the present moment. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I have this house with an attic, so all this stuff is up there, and I don't have to worry about, I don't even think about it anymore. It's all just up there, you know. But I, I think in some ways it's to stave off the forgetting and, and more loss, which would seem to be a poet's occupation in some way as well. One of the more poignant stories that I wrote about in my book, Orange Alert, that came out from Michigan, there's an essay in there called The Architecture of Loneliness. And one of the things it's about is the poetry of exile. And I I learned about... um, I was reading a book called The Ornament of the World by Maria Ros uh, Menacal, and it's about the expulsion of the Jews from Muslim Spain when Fernando and Isabel um, came and took over the peninsula. One of the very first things they did, now the the Moorish kings had a um, doctrine of religious tolerance, and many of the highest levels of government were Jewish people. It was a very integrated society. And when Fernando and Isabel came in from the north and took over, they are the ones who Christianized everything and expelled the Muslims and the Jews. And one of the things that happened is people who lived in Toledo would lock their houses Such a in beautiful city. Toledo, Toledo in Spain though. Yes. The other Toledo. Yes. Not the one that's near here. Which <laughs> hey, is, nice all, art which is museum. also beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Many things know. to recommend it. <laughs> I love I love Toledo, Ohio as Ohio. well. Ohio. Yes. But uh, so they they locked their houses up in Toledo and took the keys with them, fully intending that they would return. And then even after it became clear that they were not going to be able to return, they kept those keys with them as a symbol of what they had left behind them, what they had lost. Even and those keys were passed down through generations generations of people, even after those houses themselves no longer existed, the keys or this notion of exile stayed with these people as they wandered, as they moved from place to place, even after if they had settled down somewhere for generations, they still had those keys. That's beautiful. Yeah. So there are some things that stay with you. And that's something, that's a, that's one of the essays in Orange Alert. It's an essay called The Architecture of Loneliness, and it's about the architecture of Muslim Spain and in the context of the poetry of exile. So among other poets, I write about Mahmoud Darwish, oh, Christina yes. Peri-Rossi, who's Uruguayan, Yanis Ritsos, the Greek poet, and uh, Samasin Mahmadinovich, who's a Bosnian poet who lives in the United States. Well, yeah. and I, well, there's always many questions to ask you. It's interesting <laughs> that, um, because some of, I saw, I, I read, a, I picked a couple of the essays available online. I see a headline that says, the poetry professor becomes a terror suspect. <laughs> and I know what's coming next, but go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the, what I was wondering about is um, in the writing, let's see, what year did you write that? 2007. That was 2007. So, so that, this doesn't actually, I think it can answer my own question, but I'll let you in on it. <laughs> <laughs> as, as lame as it now seems to be. But I was thinking, did this, this writing of Bright Felon, um, give a way of talk like looking more closely at yourself um and having a conversation with yourself in the public sphere absolutely and it also made me brave 
you know, and I finished Bright Felon in a, you know, the beginning of April and I felt totally tough. And then that happened to me three weeks later and I just wasn't going to take it lying down. You know, I think in the past me might've just been like, Oh, I shouldn't have put my stuff there, you know? And I just sort of got really angry. I, you know, I was just thought to myself, you know, I didn't do anything wrong in this situation. And as a matter of fact, after the whole hullabaloo went down and the, you know, the administration of the university was saying, oh, well, you shouldn't have put your recycling in that place. <laughs> the the gentleman who tra- does the trash collection himself came up to me in the cafeteria of the school and said, I, I'm sorry that they said that because that's exactly where everyone puts their recycling. And I've picked up recycling there all the time. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. What was wrong with it was not where the recycling was. It was a box that was placed next to the trash can. It was who was doing the recycling. In this case, it was me. And who and, was watching. And who was watching me. And what was wrong with me, in quotes, was what I looked like. You know, there was no suspicious behavior beyond the fact of my dark skin. That was what was suspicious. So that's what I talk about in there when I talk about the atmosphere of fear, of the culture of fear, is what we're pointing ourselves to and what we're identifying. And are we satisfied with it? Do we want to stay scared all the time? Is is this our new reality? If this is our new reality, then, you know, so be it. That's pretty sad. But I call it to question. I don't think we want this. I think what we want is a more human um exterior motion towards this idea of generosity and trying to understand each other more, which is not to say that there isn't conflict in the world or difficulty or violence or all of these things, but we're going to have to start looking a little bit more at the source and at the individual kind of the individual um, responsibility for the atmosphere that we create, because I don't think we can just continue to get angry because then that's, that is what feeds itself and feeds itself and feeds itself. And then what, what happens when you burn something, it burns everything around it. But what happens when there's nothing left to burn means there's nothing left actually, (laughs) you know, so, so fire is, um, has no end result. It has only obliteration as it does anger. Yes. And it seems like a, a, a trying to be whole and, and trying not to, it seems like with the idea of fear, a lot of the people who are dealing in that, in the, in, at least in the media, are also trying to co-op other words, like equating it with love instead, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, is so strange, like mm-hmm. like the spinning of, of things. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think, I think we have to sort of examine the words that we're, we're using more closely and not let people get away with changing what they mean and what we mean when we say them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about love. (laughs) 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 You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor Um, today on the program. Kazim Ali, his book, Bright Felon. We'll be back.
Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel, and you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Kazim Ali is here in the studio, and we have a little time left. Um, so I'd like to quickly thank Tex for engineering today. Thank you, Tex. Um, and also Elizabeth for coming in and being in our studio audience. Woo! <laughs> She's a studio audience of one. She's a good studio audience, though. She is. We have she to is. give her a parting gift. <laughs> so we'll we'll look around the station. And we'll find something. I see a tambourine. There's like a we... microphone stand over there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but no. I'm but, still looking around. I'm like, what, is, what else is there? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth's looking around now too. Okay. <laughs> no, stop eyeing the the expensive equipment. <laughs> All right. Um, good things are. Things are bolted down. So rest assured, everyone There's out there. Pen. There's a pen. Here. That's, sure. right. That's right. Let's hear a poem. Okay. <laughs> so this poem, we were talking about the culture of fear. And there was a time after uh, September 11th, I was teaching at the Culinary Institute of America at the time. You've taught in so many inter- interesting places. Very I noticed that interesting, in yeah. your your um your biographies that I taught I was at reading the Parsons online. School of Design for a summer. I taught at the Culinary Institute. How did yeah. you find those? Like, did you just the Parsons thing those? was a summer orientation program, and it was for students who were coming over from international students who were coming over from other countries who attested that they needed more language instruction before they entered the English language classroom. And so we taught these intensive summer courses in reading and writing and listening and speaking for them. And I was involved with that. It was really interesting work. Yeah, and then I taught... And not maybe necessarily what you had the background teaching No, not at all. I had no idea how to teach ESL. It was complete... And in fact, they wanted uh, people who were not in the ESL methodology who were just going to teach. It was like immersion, basically. Like, there was no formal language education. We were just supposed to talk and write and, and talk about design. And there was an art... We were each paired with an art teacher. And so the art teacher would teach the art class or design class. And then we would take them through the streets of the city and give them different writing assignments and listening assignments. It was really wonderful. There was a lot of site-specific teaching. We took them out to Coney Island for a trip. And, and there was all kinds of different things that we did. It was a really fun program run by this woman named Marion Wren, um, who's also a poet and a writer and um, is the editor of a journal called The Painted Bride Quarterly now. But at the time, she was a PhD student at NYU, and then she was running this summer program for Parsons. It was really fun. And hearing you explain this, I can just see how it ties in with your bright Bright felon. Bright felon. I know. It's weird. Intrinsically, (laughs) like people coming from different, many different places. And and this idea of babble or the confusion of language and the kind of immediacy of just standing on a street corner and listening to things and allowing all that to wash over you, you know. Yeah, it was really it was really wild. So I had moved up from the city and I started working at the Culinary Institute. I got my MFA from NYU in 2001. And August 22nd, 2001, I moved up state to, to Rhinebeck. And I was living there and I was teaching at the Culinary Institute. I was teaching writing at the Culinary Institute. They had instituted um, a language and communications requirement for their students because they wanted them to be good communicators. And it was right on the Hudson Valley. And because of that traffic air traffic lane um, was a high security kind of area in the days after September 11th. There were always these F-16 jets that were running, flying over, etc. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a moment where there was sort of this scare where they, you know, President Bush um, 
said, uh, you know, everyone should buy plastic and duct tape and the germ scare thing. And I just remember thinking how hopeless that was and how terrible, how terrible it was to sort of live in constant fear and how defeated I felt in that moment. And little, literally closing in, closing like covering in, your windows covering, on the world. hiding in, yeah. yeah. And how are you supposed to live in a world where, you know, I just, all of this came up for me and I was, sit, I was sitting in, in the classroom at the Culinary Institute, which is an old, it was an old uh, monastery that was converted into a school. Many of the buildings on the Hudson Valley are these old monasteries because it's sort of a sacred place that attracted a lot of orders and there's lots of ashrams and Buddhist monasteries and stuff all up and down the Hudson Valley. And military academies. And military academies, yeah. (laughs) But there's a lot of energy of that kind that runs up and down the river. It's a very powerful spiritual place and so I was in the building looking out at the river. I was looking at the far shore of the river and the, the duct tape announcement had come and I just thought like what is this about? And so I wrote this poem. It's called Dear Dangerous, How Do You Explain It? And this is how it goes. Dear Dangerous, how do you explain it? We believed the world would end, fled now into the alley or the forest. Among the amber that clots minute by minute or a ship that sails to show how long time takes to happen. How does one skip a stone on water, the moment between skips? A preoccupation with God or history is no occupation. It happens that every day is synchronous, that I am still right now a little boy or dying. How do you explain it, seven o'clock, out of breath and arduous, Dear unsettled evening, all the cold shadows, how lucky we were to have lived in the world. Thank you. I love how you read with the, it seems like you're really in it, like you're embodying the line and the breath and I want to sing. Losing yourself in it somehow. Yeah. Sing. Okay. I want to sing, and it's breath. I want. I mean, I don't really want to sing like American Idol. <laughs> Come on. Idol, yeah. American Idol. This style. can be your stage. I know. Sanjaya no. was cheated, I think. <laughs> but, but, but breath. Back to <laughs> breath. Back to breath. Poor Sanjaya. Um, no, it is. It's breath. It's the poetic line and the inhale and the exhale and allowing the breath to extend all across the line. And then also sometimes I want to pull a line in on the inhale as well to kind of keep it continuous and circular. And the surge of energy in and out, the energy of the ocean, the energy of breath, the actual energy of the universe. Um, we can look at light and stars and know that... Um, stars are still actually moving away from us and that they're moving away from us geometrically not um, or exponentially I guess you would say which means that the speed of the universe is not as was previously believed constant that stars are still accelerating away from us which means that if there isn't if there is a collapse backwards we're still not yet even halfway through the life of the universe all of that is really exciting to me in this question of energy transference through a poem as with the Hudson River which like not many rivers flows out to the ocean, but also flows back up. It's what's called an estuary system. And there is a place, it's called World's End, where the river eddies and turns back. And it, it flows both ways. And that's it's in, in Bright Felon, yeah. 
Yeah. And I love how we're also pieces of stars, like our matter. We are pieces of stars. Yeah. 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 Even if they're accelerating away from us. They are accelerating away. We've still got some of them. We have some in us. In the studio. Collapsed. They're here right now. Maybe that can be her parting gift. Some stardust. (laughs) We'll just give some energy. (laughs) Spirit fingers. (laughs) <laughs> it's, I often think it's a good thing it's radio. It is good thing it's radio. Nobody saw the gesture I just made. <laughs> but but um, but back again to the poems. What I also love is that well, I love how you're you're thinking about the exchanges of energy and um, b- but also the connecting with people because the, the naming in Bright Felon, um, I, it, you mentioned like the part that you read for us, Kaizen, mm-hmm. had Marianne Moore. Mm-hmm. Her house, good, there was a moment, so she's there. And then Emily Dickinson is on a couple of pages, I think, before that. Mm-hmm. She surfaces. And so and so does um, Picasso's Guernica, mm-hmm. right? So there's these moments where you're, you're, you're naming these, mm-hmm. these mostly poets, but artists. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because to me, so much of the way that I process the world and go through it is from these artists and musicians and painters and I think that in pop culture or in our reality now we go through we think of politicians and we think of media figures and that sort of thing these people but for me it's Emily Dickinson and Picasso and you know Kazmir Malevich and Alice Coltrane and Yoko Ono and Sheila Chandra and David Lang and Carol Maso and it's all writers and artists and thinkers you know, uh, you know, when I was in France, is that were, a family? It's a family for me, I think, certainly. But it's also just a sort of guiding principles in a way. When I was in France, they were making a transition from the franc to the euro, and the euro, the figures on the euro, the portraits are all political figures, just like the dollar. We have George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, but the Frank had Alexander Effel and Paul Cezanne and Marie Curie was on the 200 notes. So these are the types of people, artists, scientists, sculptors, thinkers, you know, Claude Monet was on the 10 franc note. So what would an American democracy look like with Jeanette Rankin on the $1 bill, with Walt Whitman on the quarter, with Emily Dickinson on the $10 bill? Uh, you know, um, it would be a shift, wouldn't it? It would be a shift. It would, you know, Cesar Chavez on the twenty dollar bill. You know, these types of people who, you know, who um, who honored our life with their with their um, creative arts and artistic um, and human contributions. And that's so, what I want. That's who I want on my money. <laughs> well, I can't argue with that. Yeah, I want Cesar Chavez on my twenty dollar bill. <laughs> I mean, how amazing would that be? But what would that mean? What I think kind this of is call, your, your new... what, how that would transform our just, but just as you giving a bill and right. this person is the person's face on it, not the Andrew Jackson who was a slave owner, you know. And I, but I wonder who would. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, and I wonder who would be deciding because if it's a democratic process too, do we also have? Britney Spears on one or the situation <laughs> as we <laughs> exactly as we were trying to figure out earlier yeah that, you know you're right you're absolutely right we would have to t- take turns or something <laughs> choosing <laughs> but well thank you so much for this this hour of your time Kazim we've, we've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you're you you're welcome it's been great thanks for having me well we'll we'll speak again yes shall we say let's do it and you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. On the program today, Kazim Ali, his latest book, Bright Felon, Autobiography and Cities. 
But look for his other books, too. Orange Alert with Michigan Press, The the Far Mosque, The Fortieth Day, um, and also your novels, one with Blaze Vox books. Quinn's Passage. And Quinn's Passage. A shout out to Jeffrey. And, and the second is The Disappearance of Seth. The Disappearance of yeah. Seth. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks again, Kazim, for being here. You're welcome. It's been great. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 13th, 2010. In New York, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up on today's newscast, the Supreme Court takes up a prisoner's post-conviction right to DNA evidence. We'll look at what's next after a federal judge issues an injunction on the military's don't ask, don't tell policy. And a project in the Gulf brings attention to the ongoing health and environmental impacts from BP's oil disaster that residents say are being overlooked. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Rescue efforts continue at the San Jose mine in Chile. As of midday, more than half the 33 trapped miners have been extracted. After being confined for more than two months, 2,300 feet underground. FSRN's Jorge Garaton has more. Ten minutes past midnight, the first men emerged from the depths of the mine in a narrow escape pod. Florencio Avalos was a chosen miner. His wife and four-year-old son waited at the base of the rescue well. His son broke into a sea of tears as he saw his father for the first time in 70 days. Then he smiled and ran to hug him. Time after time, the scene was repeated today as the miners surfaced. But the images did not get old. Rescuers are able to extract three miners every two hours. At that rate, the final miner, ship boss Luis Ursua, could emerge in the early hours of Thursday morning. Jorge Garreton, FSRN, Santiago. The EPA today changed the limit on the amount of ethanol allowed in gasoline, increasing it from 10 to 15 percent for passenger vehicles made after 2006. Gina McCarthy, assistant administrator for air and radiation, told reporters that the decision was reached after extensive testing of E15 on engine durability found the blend was safe. This decision is not a mandate to make E15 available all at once. Rather, this decision is about allowing the use of gasoline blended with E15 ethanol by the appropriate vehicles to use where and when E15 becomes available. Today's decision also includes provisions for enhanced labeling of ethanol blends, clearly stating which vehicles are cleared to use them. A decision on cars made between 2001 and 2006 will likely come before the end of the year. McCarthy says further testing is needed on vehicles made before then. 49 state attorneys general have signed on to an investigation into alleged wrongdoing by banks and other mortgage companies in their handling of foreclosures. Over the past two weeks, several banks have paused foreclosure proceedings because of revelations that employees process potentially thousands of foreclosures without personal knowledge of the facts of the individual case. This practice, sometimes called robo-signing, is illegal under federal law. The multi-state working group says it will also look into allegations that the documents were not properly notarized. The needs of the survivors of sexual violence in remote areas of the Democratic Republic of Congo are largely unmet, according to a United Nations Human Rights Panel report issued today. The panel has been set up to look into sexual violence in the Central African country. It's calling on DRC's government to recognize the incidents. 
UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson 